Welcome to Arbitrary and Capricious from George Mason University's Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Gray Center's director, Adam White. On September 13th, the Gray Center hosted a conference on the future of White House regulatory oversight and cost-benefit analysis. At the conference, a number of scholars presented new research on cost-benefit analysis and the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA. All of the papers that we discussed are available on the Gray Center's website, and the conference was keynoted by the White House's Acting Administrator of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Paul Ray. Our second panel focused on the place of cost-benefit analysis in judicial review of agency action. We discussed two new papers. The first, by Brian Mannix and Bridget Dooling, was titled Codifying the Cost-Benefit State, and the second, by Paul Noe, was titled The Ascendancy of the Cost-Benefit State. In the discussion, Dooling and Noe were joined by Professor Bill Busby and former White House counsel C. Boyd and Gray. The discussion was moderated by Professor Kristen Hickman. Here's the recording. Our second panel this morning is cost-benefit analysis in the courts. And to moderate this panel, we're very pleased to have our friend Kristen Hickman. She is the Harlan, Ander, sorry, Harlan Albert Rogers Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota, a distinguished McKnight University professor at the University of Minnesota, and she's the Associate Director of the University's Corporate Institute. Kristen? Good morning, everybody. Uh, so uh, we've agreed up here on the panel that we're going to go with short intros because we want to get to the substance. Um, so... Uh, we're going to start off with a presentation by Paul Noe, who's Vice President of Public Policy at the American Forest and Paper Association, but previously was counselor to the administrator of OIRA, the topic of today's conference. And he's going to be talking about the ascendancy of the cost-benefit state. All right. Thank you, Kristen. And I want to thank uh, Adam White and the Gray Center for the study of the administrative state for the opportunity to be here today. And um, it's a real pleasure to be here with this distinguished panel and the participants in the audience. So it goes without saying for this audience that the widely accepted goal of government regulation is to enhance, not undermine societal well-being. And we all know President Reagan laid down the first principle of government regulation in 1981 in his groundbreaking executive order saying to the extent permitted by law, agencies should only regulate if the benefits exceed the costs. And that first principle has been adhered to by uh, every president since him, as Susan Dudley laid out this morning. So we have longstanding bipartisan consensus for what Cass Sunstein calls the cost-benefit state. Government regulation is increasingly assessed by whether the benefits justify the costs. And while this system has had many successes, and as an alum of OIRA, I fully support it, uh, I also believe it, it has produced uh, far less than it could have for a number of reasons. And this includes the mismatch between the vast and growing volume of regulation compared to OIRA's diminishing resources, uh, rent-seeking, uh, poor compliance uh, by the agencies with the executive orders, and finally, lack of judicial enforcement. But I also believe one of the greatest yet most readily addressable impediments to the cost-benefit state is that too often agencies have interpreted their statutes 
to uh, avoid or entirely circumvent the directives in the executive order. Um, yet, often, the uh, language of the statute itself uh, is uh, neither authorizes nor requires um, uh, noncompliance with the executive order because there's no clear language in the statute that would impede full compliance. So this is just a simple matter of statutory interpretation. And recent Supreme Court cases, including Entergy versus Riverkeeper in 2009 and Michigan versus EPA, stand for the proposition that not only can agencies almost always interpret their statutes to allow full compliance with the executive orders, but failure to do so may in fact be arbitrary and endanger the very programs they want to promote. Benefit cost analysis also, I would say, is, despite its challenges, the optimal decision tool for ensuring that regulation does more good than harm. Um, in the paper that I wrote with John Graham, we review a number of these decision procedures. For today, I'll just look at the most popular alternative, which is feasibility analysis. Uh, and rather than looking at the uh, comparing costs and benefits of alternatives and identifying the option that maximizes public welfare, which is benefit cost analysis, feasibility analysis um, involves regulating any significant risk to the extent technologically or economically feasible, even uh, sometimes to the point of bankruptcies. And compelling evidence shows that feasibility analysis lacks a normative justification, is ready manipulable. By some, it's called a standardless standard. It can just as easily lead to overregulation as to underregulation, and therefore should have no place in government regulation. So my argument today is that the administration should fully exercise its currently vast unexercised power to fully embrace the cost-benefit state, and it should do so through three main policy actions. First, the president or OMB should direct the agencies to reinterpret their regulatory statutes to require benefit cost balancing unless clearly prohibited in the statute authorizing the rule. Secondly, each agency, including the independent regulatory commissions, should issue judicially enforceable legislative rules to ensure their regulations do more good than harm and to ensure they use high quality analysis in making that determination. And finally, to further ensure the quality of these agency benefit cost analyses, OMB should issue a judicially enforceable legislative rule uh, under the uh, authority of the Information Quality Act and Paperwork Reduction Act to ensure the best available uh, information and analysis is used in the agency determinations as to whether benefits justify costs. Each of these, I believe, is very defensible. Uh, the first, the overarching directive from the president or OMB, has authority that stems from the president's take care power under Article II of the Constitution. The agency benefit cost regulations fall in the heartland of their authority under Chevron. So there should be little doubt about their legal defensibility, especially after Entergy, which found benefit cost balancing permissible even under maximal regulatory uh, language and Michigan versus EPA, which found not only was benefit cost balancing permissible under language that was entirely silent on cost, but it was in fact required to avoid arbitrariness. 
And finally, the legal authority, as I mentioned, for the OMB legislative role for the quality of these analyses stems from the Paperwork Reduction Act, the Information Quality Act. It also would be supported uh, by executive order and by a little-known statute known as the Regulatory Right to Know Act. Um, the recommended agency benefit cost regulations, which I think are the most important of the three, also, I would argue, could have real staying power. Um, they would codify what is already an emerging benefit default rule, cost-benefit default rule coming from the Supreme Court, namely that agencies must weigh benefits and costs in some form or fashion, absent clear statutory direction to the contrary. Um, it's following Michigan versus EPA, it's not re readily apparent to me how a subsequent administration could reverse a do more good than harm rule, because doing more good than harm is the essence of rational decision making. Uh, and uh, in fact, I think a legal challenge to such a regulation likely would solidify and precipitate this emerging benefit cost default rule from the Supreme Court. So in conclusion, while I am a huge proponent of the current system of regulatory review, I think it's done a great deal to improve the efficiency and quality of regulation. Far greater progress is readily at hand. President Trump has an historic opportunity to dramatically advance the cost-benefit state, and he should do so decisively. We already know from the Supreme Court that what Stu Shapiro referred to earlier as a soft super mandate, agencies may balance benefits and costs, has already been decided. That's behind us in the Entergy decision. And uh, the president has an opportunity to build, with some notable exceptions, a hard super mandate that agencies must balance benefits and costs uh, following uh, the Michigan versus EPA decision. I believe this would much more reduce unwarranted regulatory costs, greatly improve efficiency, uh, and provide much needed regulatory certainty. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is going to be Bridget Dooling. She's a research professor for the Georgetown Washington University Regulatory Studies Center and formerly was a de deputy chief, senior policy analyst, and attorney at OIRA. She's going to be talking about codifying the cost-benefit state. I'm sensing a theme. Thanks, Chris. And I think you just merged um, Georgetown and George Washington, which is not something we had been thinking about. But I'll, Did I? I'll pass it along to the provost. Oh. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's so many Georges. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm so happy to be with you all today. And if you have a chance to put a paper into the roundtables that this group organizes, this center organizes, please do it. It's a wonderful experience. Um, they treat you very well as a scholar. And you get the opportunity to engage with incredibly bright people. They draw together a group of folks who really know their stuff in an area that you're writing about. So just, you must do it. If you have any interest, please do. Um, and thanks for to Paul for setting the table for this panel so nicely. Um, what I'd like to do with my time is just sketch um, the paper that I wrote with Brian Mannix, who is here in the audience today. Say hello, Brian. There's Brian. <laughs> this paper is called Codifying the Cost-Benefit State. So this slide is going to give you the paper in a nutshell. Uh, first, we trace the rise of the cost-benefit state as a largely executive endeavor, reaching back almost 50 years. 
We also set out not just the executive branch activity, but also increasing interest in benefit cost analysis in judicial review of agency regulations. Second, we suggest that courts lack very useful standards to guide that review, with the ABA's arbitrary and capricious <laughs> standard somewhat more broad than a reviewing court might hope for. Third, we suggest that a cross-government rule that sets out such standards could help fill this need. And then we, talk, we walk through some sources of authority for the executive to promulgate such a rule and also the authorities under which courts might enforce it. So, first we describe the rise, not only of the cost-benefit state, which, as Paul, I think, mentioned, that is Professor Sunstein, Professor Cass Sunstein's term for the executive branch development of benefit cost analysis as a tool to help evaluate proposed regulations. Then we trace a line from American trucking to Michigan v. EPA, and we assess the state of Supreme Court jurisprudence as favoring benefit cost analysis. At the appellate court level, we also show that it's not just the D.C. Circuit that's issuing decisions that grapple with agency analyses. Mm -hmm. Drawing on Professor Seacott's work with Kip Viscusi, and Professor Seacott will be up for you later today, you can see that most of the U.S. courts of appeals are already engaging with agency analysis. Work that Professor Elig, who you'll also hear from, oh no, you'll hear from his co-author today, right? But he's in the audience, and Reeve Bull, Bull have built upon in their own writing. Right now, judges work with broad standards, such as the APA's arbitrary and capricious standard. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a reviewing judge, the standard doesn't give much guidance about how to tell when an agency's action is arbitrary and capricious as a result of inadequate or otherwise problematic analysis. Said another way, how is a judge to know when an agency's analysis is good enough? Also, there's the matter of Vermont Yankee, which limits what courts can ask agencies to do in the administrative area. So they might reasonably be wary of finding fault with agency choices in this area, especially if it results in a remand and the agency has to go back and adjust its analysis as a result. And the best guidance we have now on agency benefit cost analysis is contained in directives that were written for the agencies themselves, including Executive Order 12866, Circular A4, and various internal agency materials on how to do benefit cost analysis. While a judge could certainly wade through these directives and manuals to assess and divine which principles and techniques are the most important ones, that's really asking rather a lot of them. While agency or statute-specific standards have some appeal because they can be very closely tailored, the effort involved in promulgating so very many rules means that some simply might not ever get done, and that means there may be gaps. So, our proposal, well, of course, Congress could come up with something that is a cross-government rule. Congress could act to express, to create express cross-government requirements for agency regulatory analysis, but it hasn't. And anyway, that's less interesting as an academic question than whether the executive can do it, so that's where we focus. We find that the president could direct OIRA to write such a rule. The rule would ideally be written for the judges, more of a checklist to help them determine what makes an analysis good enough. Just to give one example of what this might include, it could require agencies to consider alternatives. If there's no section called alternatives, 
or if the section called alternatives doesn't actually consider alternatives. A judge doesn't have to be an economist to be able to tell that something's wrong. And that gets back to Sally's point from this morning, and I'm sorry she's not here because I'm sure I would have persuaded her, that <laughs> if you come up with a rule that is written for judges, they will be more capable of applying those standards upon judicial review. A rule drafted this way would allow a wide range of courts to engage with it, not just the D.C. Circuit with its expertise in American, sorry, in administrative law. Such a rule would also apply broadly, though you'd want to have some carve-outs as needed to comply with statutes that expressly carve out consideration of costs in agency analysis, for example. We then trace sources of authority for such a rule. And I have to say, given my background as a longtime OIRA analyst, this is the part of the paper that surprises me the most. And I mean, I wrote it <laughs> with Brian. <laughs> um, one of the first questions you ask as an analyst is whether the agency has statutory authority for what it's proposing to do. In this case, this is an area where our paper is quite different from Paul and Professor Graham's paper. I don't feel entirely comfortable resting on the statutory case for an OIRA rule on these issues. Um, there's more authority to be found, though, in the President's Article II authorities. And here we describe the curious origin story of the NEPA rule on environmental impact statements. The National Environment Policy Act of 1969, or NEPA, created a new White House office called the Council on Environmental Quality. It directed that agency to gather information, to write reports, to make recommendations to the president on a burgeoning field of environmental burgeoning a field emerging to deal with you know increasing environmental quality concerns. The president wrote an executive order directing CEQ to write guidelines. CEQ wrote guidelines. The agencies didn't so much stay close to them, neither did the courts. So the litigation environment on these issues issues was getting a little hairy through the 1970s. The president stepped in to direct CEQ to write a rule. CEQ wrote the rule, citing NEPA as authority, but also the take care clause of section of Article 2, an argument they added to the final rule where it was absent in the proposed, which leads me to suggest that they probably got some criticism on their grounding in NEPA at the proposed rule stage. So by the time of the final rule, they cited not just NEPA in a general way, but also the president's Article II authorities. It's right there in the preamble. Um, shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court in Andrus v. Sierra Club in 1979 looked favorably upon these rules and removed any doubt about their provenance, never mind that NEPA itself didn't actually direct CEQ to write rules or give them express authority to do so. Taking this example back to the realm of regulatory analysis, we think courts might elect to enforce an OIRA rule, and we offer two theories for why. First, they might be willing to adopt executive views on agency administration, on internal agency administration, and also they may find that the usefulness of a rule written for their purposes might lead them to embrace the rule much in the way they embraced the CEQ's NEPA rule. Second, um, the second theory is a response to concerns about the fallout from a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine. Writing in Gundy v. United States this past year, Justice Elena Kagan described one of these concerns in her plurality opinion, saying that if the statute at issues delegation is unconstitutional, then most of government is unconstitutional. 
The rule we describe offers a way to ensure that agency action comports with what Professor Sunstein has called the cost consideration canon of modern non-delegation doctrine, which he argues serves as an effective check on agency action. This then would advance some of the objectives of those advocating for a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine, but it would not likely lead to widespread vacation of existing statutes. It therefore offers an intermediate pathway to place limits on the administrative state without pushing it off the non-delegation cliff. Just to recap, in this paper, we march through the cost-benefit state in its judicial review. We argue that courts lack very useful standards to guide that review. With the APA's arbitrary and capricious standard somewhat more broad than a reviewing court might hope for. We offer that a cross-government rule that sets out such standards could help fill this need. And we find the executive has authority to promulgate such a rule and that courts might be willing to enforce it. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so commentary on our two papers. We're going to kick off with Bill Busby, who's a professor of law from Georgetown University. <laughs> hey, third try. I get there eventually. Um, well, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you, as always, to uh, this law school and Adam and Leah, who really coordinates these things. And it's an honor also to be on the panel with uh, Boyd and Gray, who's, who's just by coincidence has the same name as the center here. And I, I just think that's incredibly surprising and remarkable, but it's good they found him. Um, so, um, and, and Bill, don't forget, he wrote the Reagan order, 12291. Well, too. there we go, too. So is, he's, he's, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I was trying to figure out how I feel. I'm a counterpoint uh, commenter. Adam says, you know, I'm, I'm someone who will reasonably criticize views that, uh, that might be more generally um, accepted here. And I was all ready to quote Hamilton thinking I was be prove my coolness, except another paper quoted what I was going to quote, to think about being outgunned, outplanned, um, <laughs> outnumbered. Um, and then earlier also, uh, Adam quoted Hamilton in several ways. So, so I just mentioned I feel that that's unfair. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so um, you know, and then I guess lastly, and this informs this, although I'm uh, you know, Professor Georgetown probably tend to see more benefits in the regulatory project than frequently has been the case at these panels, I previously I didn't work both in the public interest and the environmental side and represented industry and municipal and state governments and, uh, and frankly have done lots of work for industry and so understand concerns with bad regulation and bad implementation. So I have three main points uh, in response to the papers, both this panel in particular, but drawing on some others that I think had raised interesting points. Um, and I think... Uh, uh, Paul and Bridget did a great job in summarizing their papers, so I won't kind of recap them as much as I plan to. So um, just the three main points, okay? So um, one, I think these papers underestimate or fail to grapple enough with uh, a, an important strain in administrative law, and it's called what I would call consistency doctrine, this body of law that requires agencies over time to act consistent with both statutes and their own previous approaches or really have a carry a burden to explain a change. And I think that has several important elements to think about the ideas today. Um, second, um, these consistency mandates and this issue about how much could you possibly try to impose a more uniform form of cost-benefit analysis across agencies um, 
is both an interesting idea, has some valuable elements, but there are also fundamental constitutional overtones here that I think maybe are not being weighed quite enough. And then lastly, I want to talk briefly about legitimacy and prudence, even if we think these ideas maybe in some settings could surmount legality challenges. That doesn't mean they're all good ideas. Okay, so first, on consistency doctrine, a very basic idea. Enabling Acts rule, right? We're in the Antonin Scalia um, Law School here, and as he long wrote about, every statute is the product of heated compromise and contestation about small language choices. So anytime someone proposes to make uniform across all agencies or through OIRA or even uh, across all statutes and all agencies instead of statute by statute, that is to create a uniform way of thinking about costs and benefits, you run afoul of the respect for what particular statutes do. And this is a fundamental problem. And so what I think people need to think about is cost-benefit analysis can in some settings provide value, and I think it can. Um, However, how it is used, how that analysis is tailored and used, you have to balance respect for each enabling act's particular statutory choices and then what cost-benefit might illuminate or do. And so, um, and so that I, that's what I just call as legal consistency. That is, any court reviewing an agency's work and use of cost-benefit analysis is going to fundamentally not say, you know, what, what does Busby or, or, or Gray or Noe or others think about cost-benefit and what would be prudent, but is the agency acting consistent with its statutory edicts? So that's one very important point. Um, now, um, that said... Okay, that a lot of today's papers are correct to say the Supreme Court has, in a line of cases, become more amenable to consideration of costs and benefits in some form. Okay, and so you do have this line of cases, um, but I think there's two things. One is I think they're misreading the cases a little bit, and I'd say the cases don't go so far as Paul in particular suggests, but also a lot of these cases are really talking about a presumption of providing implementation flexibility. They kind of have a strong anti-prescriptive regulation tone versus a strong embrace of cost-benefit as an analytical um, prism or an analytical filter. Okay, so um, you know, what do these cases say? I, 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 if you haven't read their papers, I really do encourage you. I think these papers do a very good job in talking through some of the key language in these cases and then you can look for yourself to see how far they go. Um, but very importantly, Michigan versus EPA is the last, that and the Weyerhaeuser case are probably the last two important cases that have talked about the legality of consideration of costs and benefits. And Michigan is being misread a lot. Not so much here where I think people have quoted it carefully but maybe then focused on one thing. But very importantly, what you have in that case is you do have I would say a unanimous Supreme Court saying, as a general matter, agencies should think about the overall effects of what they do unless in some way they are precluded from doing so. Okay, so that's Justice Kagan's um, uh, dissent, but which concurs in that uh, possibility, and then Justice Scalia's majority opinion. Okay, good enough. But very importantly, the whole case is about agencies need to talk about what the statutes have as their goals and their designated benefits and consider ripple effects of the choices. It's not a cost-only case. It is think about the benefits and the goals 
and you usually have some latitude to also think about in a reasonable or perhaps informal way the associated costs. And so very importantly, it's not saying just costs, and it's definitely not saying a formal cost-benefit filter through which a regulation must pass. There is no way you would have had a majority there. There's no case accepting that, um, and that's an important thing. Second, people often leave out in discussing Whitman versus American trucking, you know, the case that came out <laughs> the opposite way, uh, where the court said under, this, under the National Ambient Air Quality Standards that there is no room for consideration of costs because of basically absence of language focus on health in one provision and consideration of costs in other provisions. In that case, there's also a footnote where Justice Scalia, speaking for majority, says, and if an agency even considers a cost-benefit analysis where the statute doesn't allow it, that itself would be arbitrary and capricious. Okay, so people kind of assume it's totally fine. That's a unanimous Supreme, not unanimous, a majority Supreme Court um, saying that. So importantly, this idea of what agencies can consider, people have to be very careful assuming that they always can consider a cost-benefit analysis. The, the cases do not say that. Now, um, I want to point now, turn in an uncharacteristic way to a really interesting and I think important point in Paul's paper uh, with John Graham um, and... Uh, and what I think is an important mistake, um, I say with, with fondness and respect for Paul's uh, good service and his daughter's here too, and that's a great thing. Um, and, and, and so... Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, we were on a panel before a congressional hearing a couple of years ago, and we realized that all of us had, in one way or another, a Georgetown connection. And so I'm a professor. He'd been, I'm trying to remember who the third was and what the connection was, but we thought that was rather maybe... Interesting or strange, good or bad, I don't know. But on page 32 of the paper, and you, I think, all have access to it, um, this is the logical point. Um, uh, Justice, quoting the Entergy case, which is one of the important cases about flexibility, says the following. Uh, it says, because formal cost-benefit analysis is a subset of informal cost-benefit analysis, uh, therefore, an agency can commit to essentially a commitment to a mandate to do formal analysis. And so think about So it's basically to go back to, I don't know, somewhere between second and fifth grade, uh, Venn diagrams. I think the, the, the vision that Paul has is that if informal cost-benefit analysis is presumptively allowed, that there's some latitude for informal, that is some consideration, then they view a formal commitment and mandate of cost-benefit analysis as a subset, a smaller set. And I don't think this is right, okay? And so very importantly, just as far as <laughs> counting votes, looking what the cases say, there is a big difference in these decisions between an agency can pay some attention to costs while doing other work and a, and a view that a court or an agency could say the agency must put the final choice through a cost-benefit filter, kind of optimizing the net benefit outcome. And so one is, just as a matter of constructing majority opinions across these cases, it's just not there. Secondly, as a matter of logic, to say that an agency has some power to consider informally cost is not a constraining filter but an expanding filter. And I think in reality, you know, the literature on cost-benefit analysis, much of it has been developed here over the years, 
it is the idea that it is a constraining final filter about choosing usually greatest net benefit or least net cost outcomes, and that is very constraining. And, um, and in fact, um, and so it would be narrowing the range substantially rather than saying an agency can avoid doing the stupid. Okay, um, and a lot of these cases, including the more recent case called Encino Motor Cars about consistency doctrine and policy change, you know, these cases really do add up to an element of saying agencies should not do stupid things, and they are not forced to act in a blinded way, but can look at the overall logic of what they do. That's very different from saying everything should be reduced to a cost-benefit filter with perhaps a single point as an acceptable outcome. Um, so um, that's used up most of my time. Um, just a couple of things I'll just say by way of uh, a suggestion here. This is a constitutional issue. That is, you know, to the extent uh, OIRA or the White House or agencies try to kind of change the deal struck in Congress, there is a genuine issue about taking care that the law is faithfully executed, which is the fundamental constitutional duty of a president. And so I think you have to always think about, is it really possible to do a cross-agency, cross-statute uh, mandate of cost-benefit? And I would say no, okay, that I think it's just inherently going to be in tension with the varied nature of statutes, except in one respect. I do think that if OIRA and or Congress or maybe a future conference mm -hmm. here instead tried to say what could be cross-cutting best practices especially cross-cutting best practices that could be show a consistency of embrace about, say, what do you think about baseline conditions? How do you deal with incremental costs? How do you deal with the discount rate? What might be a neutral way to think about discount rates? There, you could come up with something that would be a commitment to a presumption of consistency of approaches and an embrace of best, an embrace of best methods where the regulatory preamble, although adding a lot of pages to the Federal Register, um, it would be really an attempt to explain why this would be a good thing and it could be distilled to these best practices. That would be very different. In other words, this would be kind of creating a single coherent document that would maybe create a default baseline of good things to be done but would not be an attempt to say all agencies must do all these things. It would essentially be an off-the-rack series of best practices to be considered where agencies then would have you know, a, you know, the ability when appropriate to say, well, we really can't in this setting because this statute's about health. Um, and so um, – and just uh, I, I do think that the papers on the earlier panel later were excellent, interesting. Um, you know, Stuart and Chris had a disagreement about – how good uh, the cost-benefit analyses are. Um, I come out more like Stuart, and I just I really recommend any, every one of you try to read the cost-benefit analysis for the ACE rule and try to tell me what it says about deaths from particulate matter, ozone, mercury contamination, most of them in contrast to work long done by the FDA, by EPA, uh, by... Uh, OSHA, NIOSH, all these different agencies, it, when it comes to talking about, they keep saying, well, we can't. We can't assess, say, the health risks of mercury. That's a stunning claim, okay, that this is an area the federal government has for decades 
had data about mercury risk. The Michigan case itself, the Supreme Court says, look at the health and cost uh, risks of mercury. And so at the end of that uh, cost-benefit, suddenly the agency is saying, well, we cannot consider, we can't assess a whole range of impacts. They just say we can't and don't. And so, but then you look and say, did they say that before? What have they said in, in the past about this? There's absolutely no consistency in saying, how have we felt about this in the past? That's the kind of problem that should be avoided. There should be a consistency of approaches. If we're going to accept this as a tool, we should embrace consistency over time, embrace consistency with enabling acts, but also perhaps embrace some best practices. That, I think, might work. So thank you. Okay, and our last speaker really does need no introduction in this room. Uh, C. Boyden Gray of Boyden Gray and Associates, who's also senior fellow, patron, and namesake of the center hosting our event, will uh, wrap up the initial remarks. These remarks are stealth <laughs> remarks because Adam excluded my bio from the papers. <laughs> so I'm here invisible. And I'm not sure I have that much to add <clears throat> anyway, but two or three points. <clears throat> I think some of the details aside, not unimportant details, cost-benefit is, is solidly in the, in the lineup. And the last two or three decades have been uh, wonderful examples of progress by agencies in getting their acts together and pulling together material uh, to explain what they're doing. And I, having been around in 1980 when all this was started, am kind of stunned that, that the changes um, have, have, have been so, so positive. Um, so what happens for the next decade? Well, I think that's the decade for the courts. That's where the courts begin to flesh out what their responsibility is to second-guess, perhaps, uh, uh, an agency an agency rule, an agency uh, analysis, or where the agency hasn't done it or, or done a very sophisticated one, do one of its own. Um, one of the papers, I guess the, the Mannix dueling paper, um, implies or I think says that a good example of this is the Business Roundtable SEC case that uh, Judge Ginsburg wrote. But he wasn't writing under, as, as implied, just the, the APA. Uh, he was including requirements that were separately in, uh, um, imposed uh, by the 34 Act, I think, and the 40 Act, the, uh, uh, statutes and business or, or relevant only to the SEC. And it was those statutes that, that he uh, was, was interpreting. I don't think he was doing this free form from the APA alone. Um, but I do think that Michigan versus EPA does sort of close the circle and now open it up to the 
courts to begin to develop their own, maybe common law, if you want to call it that, or call it something else. But I do think um, it's now a requirement, it's now incumbent upon the agencies uh, to do this. There are intriguing um, analyses about non-delegation and about, I guess, references to uh, Justice Kagan's article about how White House uh, participation uh, in the development or the uh, evolvement of cause-benefit analysis would maybe a defense against non-delegation. I don't quite understand that. I don't think that's true. I don't know that cost-benefit analysis is indeed a defense against non-delegation. Um, I don't think uh, American Trucking accepts that view, kind of rejects it, actually, says all this cost-benefit stuff um, um, doesn't help you at all. We have to, we, we the courts, have to decide the non-delegation issue. It isn't decided by a cost-benefit analysis by the uh, by the agency that, that purports to, to, to uh, develop or set uh, limits on agency action. So I think the courts are going to have to learn to do this on their own. I think they're perfectly capable of doing it. Uh, it isn't all that difficult. It is true that Doug Ginsburg was head of OIRA and was, was well trained by his predecessors, but um, uh, I think that it's well known enough now with what's involved that um, the quality of the judges is such being appointed that I think uh, judges in all circuits can um, can do this. And I think that um, this non-delegation is an issue that stands separate from, it, it, it bumps into uh, cost-benefit, but cost-benefit is no, is no defense to non-delegation and no help. I think to, to, to non-delegation, but the same thing. Um, I have one, the, the, the issues that bother me, uh, having witnessed much of the sweep of this, um, are two which really have nothing to do with the details, because I de think the details will take care of themselves. The first is, we heard it, uh, reference to it, the budget of, of OIRA is really a fraction of what it was then, or and certainly if you add in the increased workload of today, to say nothing of what they should do about independent agencies, it's just not up to it. You've got to add a lot more money to, um, to have a, a, a fair play, a fair game with the, um, between OIRA and the agencies. Um, without a big, big increase in budget, I just think that <coughs> OIRA is going to get, is going to get uh, outraced. The second is, and I don't know why, I don't have really solid data about it, but I was asked once on a long driving trip several years ago by Judge Ginsburg when he was still chief judge. He said, why do you think in the midst of the greatest um, rulemaking binge in American history has our caseload dropped to the lowest in the country? And I said, well, you won't like this answer, but it's because the agencies have gotten so much power, they blackmail you out of judicial review if they don't want you meddling in their decision. 
And they've done that several times. EPA is especially good at it because they're so, so adept at hiding things in impenetrable prose. Uh, if you want to want to learn non-English, go work at EPA. Okay, so uh, before we get to questions, I do want to give Paul and Bridget an opportunity to respond. Uh, so, Paul? Great. What I want to say, and I am kind of an optimist, Bill, but I'm going to claim victory from your critique of my paper because I think it's awesome if liberals like you and conservatives like me are just sort of nitpicking over details when you wholeheartedly agree that it ought to be unlawful for agencies to do things that are really stupid because if we can agree on that, we've accomplished an enormous amount. And I could go on and tell you lots of stories afterwards of why I think that's the case. But I also just want to remind you, and I know you carefully read the paper, but as John and I said in the paper, our focus is not so much on whether the courts are in the process of developing a benefit-cost default rule, although we agree that they are, and this is a revolution in administrative law, but rather our focus is on the currently unexercised power of the executive branch to fully embrace the cost-benefit state. So to turn to your critique, I don't have to show that courts are mandating that agencies use formal benefit-cost analysis. All I have to show is that the president has the power to require them to do so unless Congress is unambiguously instructed to the contrary. And the burden's not on me, it's on you to show me statutes that unambiguously forbid agencies from using robust quantitative benefit-cost analysis. There are a small number of those, but good luck because the burden's on you, and I really don't think, you may be able to correct me, but I don't think there, you're going to find very many statutes that fall in that category, and, and that's where the burden lies. So I think I'm going to claim victory on the basics here. May, may I respond to that Indeed. quickly? Um, Indeed. So, um, and this is on, right? Okay. The, um, I guess one is, um, I, I think actually people of all stripes think agencies that are acting imprudently and don't have a basis for their action should be struck down. And so I view that as long being common ground across the board. And anyone who studies agencies know there are good agencies, bad agencies, good actions, stupid actions, and they always should be criticized. So, so yeah, I'm happy to have that agreement. But um, it is a legal error under pretty established law. Some people talk about the Prill Doctrine. An agency that erroneously believes its hands are tied or erroneously misconstrues the range of options it has is acting illegally and will be subject to a remand from the courts. So, so even if an agency might have some power to consider costs, if they say, let's say a White House said, you must do formal cost-benefit analysis and choose only the greatest net benefit outcome, and if an agency then said, this is what we must do, the court would have to agree that that's what's mandated by the statute or that body of law would change. And again, I, I think that the, here's the difference is that from the Chevron case, Michigan, a whole slew of cases, especially the Homer case, for those who are following this line of cases in the papers, these cases really are about anti-prescriptive regulation, leaving 
entities, whether they are targets of regulation or implementers, with discretion and flexibility, which usually translates into finding lower-cost ways of doing things. But that's an anti-prescriptive presumption, not a cost-benefit filter. And I just think, actually, the Prill case is, is, is why that would be wrong. I just think under current law, you would have to get the courts to reject that and create not just agencies can consider costs, but that they must presumptively, and that becomes a presumptive part. I'm just saying there's not cases doing that yet. We'll probably need further discussion afterwards, but I'm not arguing agencies should be doing uh, robust quantitative benefit cost analysis because they must. I'm saying the president has the authority to tell them to do it. Why? Because regulation should do more good than harm and enhance societal well-being. So to the extent they haven't done this in the past, they are absolutely being inconsistent with what they've done in the past, which is not socially optimal. And they have every reason, and it's quite defensible to explain why you would want to make that change. What you actually would be saying as the agency is, we're going to go back to 1981. We've been told by every president for the last 38 years to do this. We often didn't do it. We interpreted our statutes to be conflicting with this presidential directive, when in fact, now that we're taking a good look at the text of our statute, there's not anything in this statute that forbids us from complying with what we were told to do 38 years ago. We have lots of good reason to do it, and I think that's going to be upheld. I think that's a good place to be legally. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I disagree, but I but, okay. but we still let others ask questions okay. and comments. Yeah, thanks. Um, first, to, to Boyden on his point about non-delegation doctrine and whether cost-benefit analysis is helpful at all, I, I think that's it's fair to raise that question, and I think we can do more you know, in our next draft um, to sort of parse the difference between non-delegation doctrine and sort of the solution or sort of middle ground that we're proposing. So I, I take that to heart, and, and we'll work on that for the next draft. I think that's fair. Um, on the, the – and a follow-up question, I think, for Bill on the um, anti-prescriptive tone – I agree it's there. What I was wondering what you think about the roots of it and whether it's rooted in Vermont Yankee or something deeper. Um, I think actually looking at the cases, and I think the Weyerhaeuser case uh, that yeah. I think both of you cited yeah. in parts of your papers, which is a more recent Supreme Court case, you know, I, I think it, that is pretty clearly pegged to uh, arbitrary and capricious review and reasoned decision-making, just that, um, that in general, you know, agencies should think about what they do and not imprudently constrain those who might have to make choices. Um, and I do think that's probably looking at this whole body of literature going back to well before 1980s on regulation and where regulation works well and it doesn't. There is this general problem with who knows what and agencies always struggle to get good information. And so those on the first line of choosing how to comply there really is a problem with saying you must do something in a particular way. That will tend to be a bad way to regulate. And a lot of these cases have language about that. Okay. And so I just think when you look at the language, it's about kind of prudent forms of regulation versus an obsessive focus on just a, a bottom line monetizing. Yeah. Also, I think that all these cases, very importantly, to say that the agencies have to respect the particular Enabling Act choices, which all these cases do, but then also think about related costs is very different from a societal cost-benefit analysis, which Paul talks about a lot and your paper's not as clear about. About Societal cost-benefit is, 
Okay, you know, agencies going to do something. Let's look at everything, direct and indirect, that we can reasonably think about, including usually some qualitative factors, and then figuring out the best way to act. That's very different from saying this, a, this particular statute has a goal of, let's say, a, a, a safe product or, or minimal harmful additives in foods, mm-hmm. and then say, okay, of the choices fulfilling that, what might be a good way to go thinking about cost? Those are dramatically different. A societal cost-benefit analysis and a statute-constrained focus on cost-benefit are two very different things. Mm-hmm. They might, in application, find common ground. Mm-hmm. Going back to Venn diagrams, they might overlap, right? Someone might say, well, it turns out that three choices societally that are rational also would fit within the statute, but that's still very statute-constrained. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I think the what I've been thinking about with this is that you know, in what we've sketched, it's the executive that's doing the prescribing, not the court, right? It's the executive mm-hmm. providing that overlay, that sort of societal overlay on top of the statutory constraints that, and, and enablement that the agency has. And mm-hmm. so we're not, we're not so much saying that, this, that the origin for this is the courts telling agencies how to do its analysis. It's that the court is serving as a reviewer, a backstop on the, the way the executive has decided it wants its agencies to conduct itself, conduct those analyses. Mm-hmm. So that's the, I, I think that is he- helpful and avoids some of the challenge, right? In the absence of a rule like this, I think it, it's going to be hard for courts to get into the details of a benefit cost analysis to assess whether it's good or not. So what we're looking to do is hand judges some tools they can use um, bi- really built for their use so that you know they, they have something they can apply mm-hmm. rather than trying to figure out how to do it by themselves from scratch when we've got you know almost 50 years of executive branch experience on how to do it and what some of those best practices are. Okay, well, I have lots of questions, but uh, before... I take over asking my questions. I do want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, if I see a hand, there's a there are a couple hands here. If our microphones could uh, seek out those people. Uh, Jamie Conrad, Conrad Law and Policy Council. Uh, question for, for Bridget, and I apologize I haven't had a chance to, to read the paper, but I did look at the Andrus case the other day. Um, and it struck me in terms of as a model for, a, for an OIRA kind of government-wide rule, while the NEPA statute doesn't specifically have a section that says, and CEQ may issue implementing regulations, it does have language about CEQ doing coordination of agencies, and, and the court cited that language in discussing the, the, uh, the rule. The other thing was, I, as I recall, it's a dictum. Nobody challenged this, the NEPA rules. The Andrus case had to do with, I think, their application in some fashion. So, so I'm thinking, and I guess third, there was a statute. There was at least a NEPA statute. There is To, to have OIRA do a, a cost-benefit rule in the complete absence of any authorizing statute, I just wonder... You know, I'm thinking of, of Judge Justice Gorsuch in his the, uh, food marketing case... You know, that was sort of a different day, and, and I, I, are there other cases, or, or is there a case where you have a pure Article II grounded regulation? I mean, I don't, that's a great question. I'd, I'd welcome 
thoughts if others have found some. I, I think we saw there were a couple alluded to in a Peter Strauss paper, if I'm thinking right, and I think we have a footnote on that somewhere in there. Um, but it's, it's an interesting question what would happen if someone sued to challenge either the NEPA rules, you know, probably it's too late, or in OIRA rule. It's interesting to think about who would actually have standing to bring such a case, right? Particularly if the rule is directed to internal agency operations and it doesn't directly affect the rights of any particular private parties. So I, I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, you know, a facial challenge to an OIRA rule in a way that perhaps there wasn't one in the NEPA context, but I, I think there might be some hurdles to that kind of litigation. I see this coming up more in more typical APA litigation about agency rules. Um, you sue for an agency's particular final action, you know, sue challenging it, and the OIRA rule just fills in the gaps on where there might be, you know, procedural defects in that rule. So um, I don't know if that helps at all, but but I think it's worth thinking about who who would actually be able to challenge such an OIRA rule um, in the way you're describing. And as far as you know, NEPA's what NEPA directs CEQ to do, I would just argue that it's a couple pa uh, hops on a lily pad, maybe two lily pads, from um, you know directing CEQ to write reports and make recommendations to the president and serve as sort of the president's point office on environmental quality. So f the first executive order directed them to do guidelines. That's actually not even in the statute. The second executive order goes further and directs them to write a rule, right? So, uh, you know, the, the lily pads got hopped upon um, in such a way that there's quite a bit of daylight between NEPA, the statute, and and the general provisions that, that CEQ cites in its rule. I was surprised by that. I hadn't looked at that history before, and if folks in the room, you know, know it better, I'd love to know more about you know, that time period, how it went down. Brian's got some history there, too. Um, but it's, it's a curious case. I don't know whether there's others. I'd love to hear about it if there are. Um, Kristen, can I just interject one quick thing? Of course. Which is just, um, you know, I believe, I, one, I think Jamie's question is, is a yeah. good one, and I think it's correct, you know, that, that CEQ's action is an area where clearly, if you look at the early deference cases like the Hearst case and Universal Camera, clearly you have a designated entity in the statute who has primacy over a statute, and that's CEQ. And so it's quite different from a, an agency claiming some interpretive primacy over all statutes and setting some presumptive regulation. Um, but you might also look at the following, which is just that um, I believe under NEPA and under CEQ regulations and by practice, all agencies also have their own specific NEPA-tailored sets of, I think, sometimes regulations, sometimes guidance documents. But... Um, and so you basically actually have CEQ and then agencies with particular tasks who have tried to meld what enabling acts require mm -hmm. and NEPA requires. And so that also one place you might just look and see is how courts dealing with that melding have dealt with the legitimacy of the CEQ regs. Yeah, sure. um, but that is, that is an additional layer of law here. So I saw a hand from Jerry Ellig back there. Hi, Jerry Ellig with the Regulatory Studies Center at, at GW. I have a question both for Bridget and for Paul, uh, just, just to clarify something in, in your proposals. I mean, the analysis is not the decision. It's one thing to require an agency to do an economic analysis that covers these topics. It's quite a different thing to require an agency to adopt a particular decision-making rule 
like benefits have to exceed costs or pick the maximum net benefits. So could you just clarify, in each of your proposals, uh, are you proposing that agencies be required to conduct a certain type of analysis, or are you also proposing that agencies be required to, to follow a particular decision rule once they've done the analysis? Should I go first? I'll go first. It's my answer simple. Absolutely. I'm going all the way. I'm requiring a... <laughs> Uh, a, uh, the pre President Trump is the exact right president to do a hard super mandate, except where it's, ex uh, it's clearly prohibited by the statute authorizing the rule. And that would be um, such a revolution in the cost-benefit state that um, I think it would just it – it would be bring everything to a whole new level and I think do a tremendous amount to improve the efficiency and the quality of regulation. And some of the speakers earlier may want to join me in supporting this concept because they raised this concern that the administration couldn't possibly embrace cost-benefit analysis. And I, I, I think otherwise. I think it's a great opportunity, and I hope they do it. Thanks. Um, so now I will extol the virtues of co-authorship, especially with someone where you aren't an entire, um, entirely in intellectual mind meld, right? So for um, Brian and I, and I'll only speak for myself, um, I think we're not entirely, we're, we, the paper sort of skips that question for a reason, and that's because at least I have some concerns about the all the way model that Paul's lined out. Um, I, I would couch that more as um, a product of just needing to keep thinking about it. Um, certainly it would contain the, the process points, um, but as to whether you know the cross-government rule could tell agencies how to make their decisions, it's just something that I need to think about more. But I appreciate the question. I do think it's relevant. Um, and for this paper, we were just more focused on you know com conceptualizing the idea, thinking about sources of authority for such a rule. Um, the contents of that rule, as you, I'm sure you can perceive, are incredibly important and a really important thing, and maybe that's the next paper. Yeah. And then we have a woman over here who needs a microphone as well. Richard Williams. Um, Paul, I would argue right now that agencies generally keep a boot squarely on economists' foot. If we were to go with your proposal, that would make the boot squarely on their neck. I doubt you'd ever see a truthful benefit-cost analysis ever again with that kind of proposal. So, Well, I, I hate to see my friend Richard give up on economists uh, when, in fact, the whole intent of the paper is actually to help liber the, liberate them from the, from the boot, right? Um, the point is that the current system is kind of hortatory. It's, you know... If you want to sound a little cynical, it's a precatory wish. And I've seen from my time in the belly of the beast, you've been there too, that often these words that are, they sound great, administration to administration, but the actual implementation, I mean, they make Swiss cheese out of this stuff. And so I think it's the exact opposite. I think if you actually made this operative, and this is why people wanted regulatory reform from the Congress since the 80s. I uh, never have gotten it, but this, it should be a decision standard, right? Unless Congress has said otherwise, it ought to be a decision standard that the regulation is going to enhance societal well-being, and the agency will live or, live or fall based on that. And based on what? Not on gaming, but on the evidence. And that will shift the debate 
away from, I think, highly unproductive and highly divisive kind of debates to a debate over the evidence. And that's exactly where our government needs to be. It's exactly where the regulated community needs them to be, for there to be sustainable and predictable regulation. And it's, I think it's where public interest groups should be. Um, because the gaming that is allowed now under these standardless standards and you know feasibility analysis, what goes on there, uh, would be curtailed significantly. And I also think the reason, in contrast, the bill actually like trying to push the envelope, I agree with Cass Sunstein on pushing the envelope on quantitative analysis, is because I think that's a complete game changer. This old canard that, look, judges are generalists. They can't possibly handle this. They're not PhD economists. I mean, once you get the quantification, their job, as in every other walk of life where quantification is used, whether you're a CEO approving a new project or you're grading students, whatever you're doing, quantification allows generalists to do their job quite readily. And when you look closely at the case law that have dealt with uh, benefit cost analysis, I think judges have been highly successful. I think Caroline's article uh, that she wrote with Kip Viscusi shows that. I think uh, a lot of the cases themselves show that. I think, you know, um, Jonathan Maser and Posner have written on this extensively. And I agree with them completely. I think some of the cases that have been the most excoriated in administrative law, like the business roundtable decision, like corrosion-proof pipe fittings, are not outliers at all. They're harbingers of what's to come, which is quantitative analysis that judges can review, and they can police this gaming. So I, I just have to ask you, Richard, why do you like the status quo? Because I know you've seen all the gaming that goes on there. And I just can't believe you're happy with that. Oh, I, I do not like the status quo. Let me be clear. And I think you're absolutely right. I want to see debate on the evidence in the courts, right. in the right. Congress, and in the public. Right. What I worry is if agencies continue to have the monopoly, which is what they have, on doing this analysis right. and controlling the amount of information that gets out, uh, I worry that we're going to get to really an honest uh, benefit-cost analysis that really does lay out the evidence factually. But but that's sort of my point in the paper, Richard. So I talk about quantitative analysis and what, how that's a complete game changer. And this old issue about judges being generous and can't handle it is really a red herring because it, it's first and foremost a decision procedure. That's what judges are used to is dealing with procedures. Did the agency quantify benefits and costs, compare them in comparable units? You know, the case laws, things like, you did a risk reduction regulation, but you have this huge substitution risk. You didn't even account for it. You didn't discount over time. Or you discounted benefits but not costs. Hello, judges are going to catch you on that. They are quite competent. In my experience, judges are extremely intelligent and analytically capable, and they're going to catch this stuff. And if the president makes this a decision standard, and the agencies in OIRA have information quality standards to supplement that decision standard, this gaming is going to end, and we're going to move our regulatory system a quantum leap forward where it's evidence-based. I agree. Ma'am, please. Hi, Crystalyn Weaver. I'm a student here at George Mason. My question is actually a great segue from yours, so I'm glad that you asked that. Um, so feeding off the gaming system, I, I would just argue that garbage in, garbage out. Right. And I don't 
I'm not qualified. I'm a pharmacist. I've taken stat statistical analysis classes, yes. and I am not qualified to analyze agency uh, cost-benefit analysis. So I think that um, I also have a lot of faith in judges that they can they can do this work. I've heard a lot, over and over speakers say that um, this isn't work that judges can do. I think they can, but I wonder why we couldn't um, have Congress or however the process works give courts the resources to have an economist on staff. Like, why can't there be an impartial uh, advisor that the courts can lean on that aren't affiliated with one of the parties that can tell them if there's garbage assumptions in the analysis? I mean, just a quick response to that. I mean, we have an adversarial system, right? And, you, and judges rely on the parties to brief one or the other side of the issue. Parties are incentivized to bring experts to the table when they think it's relevant and useful, and that's the system that we've got. Um, to the extent you're encouraging judges to have their own sort of like talent on the bench in their chambers, um, you shift some of that process and the way that things work. But I mean, as you say, ju different judges sort of have different capabilities. They have different clerks with different capabilities and backgrounds. And for what it's worth, I think, given your background, you're perfectly qualified to analyze yes, a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, I'm, I'd <laughs> only add. Oh, go ahead. Just go one ahead. thing I'd say that the that I think we're just leaving out, which is just to compl you know to complexify it more, which is yeah, there's always a range of estimates and there's always uncertainties mm -hmm. and especially if you regulate well where you avoid prescriptive regulation there's uncertainties what will happen because it's very hard to tell what will happen mm -hmm. when when you unleash markets and creativity and people trying to come up with best ways to do things and so you really do have a genuine problem just with uncertainties and that's part of it so so I'm not sure what the answer should be on that even from your viewpoint, Paul, but, but I think it needs to be grappled with. And then the other is two things about problems with data. There's a lot of regulatory lying, and I think people keep focusing on agencies, but the tendency of interest groups uh, to very selectively put in information favoring their views and then maybe a few years later make totally opposite claims uh, with no retrospective look back at their own past claims about what will happen um, is a genuine issue. So I just think we have to think about integrity and information, but not the agency on its own, but to make sure stakeholders are obliged to not just put in inputs, but grapple with their own past claims and hard data that is itself reliable. And if people are engaged in hyperbole or selectivity or outright regulatory mm -hmm. lying, then it should be identified. And just right now, there's, I think, in, inadequate attention to the problem of unreliable regulatory inputs into the process, um, but it's something that needs to be addressed. And I think it's hard. By the way, and it, it's, it is genuinely hard. There have only been a handful of articles about regulatory look back between claims of costs and what's happened and what they have found. Uh, Leslie McAllister, a very talented professor, died a few years ago, uh, did several pieces and found that based on early claims of what the cost would be and actual track record, vastly different. That the cost of compliance tend to be a fraction of what people complain about at the time regulation is proposed. So you need to think about that problem as yeah. well. And Bill, is that the agency's estimate of cost or the, the public comments? It's both. It's both, okay. Yeah. And so, and, and just the range. And so, and it's a really difficult problem. And that's why, if you all haven't read it, I think the best debate on this issue, yeah. uh, despite all the brilliance in the room, is 
Cass Sunstein and Tom McGarity had a debate in, I think, Texas Law Review about arsenic regulation and how to think about costs and benefits years ago in a paired, uh, pair of articles where the kind of question is, what can you do with this? And, and uh, Professor Sunstein came out with this a massive range to which Professor McGarity said, see, I told you, <laughs> which is there's a problem of how you can use something where it's almost always a range that's highly indeterminate. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's... But, and I, but so. to Bill, to your point and the, the original question about the garbage in, garbage out, that's why I think it's so important not only to have this cost-benefit super mandate, all right, but you need quality standards to avoid garbage in, garbage out, both in the agency rules, and it's why I've got... The suspenders are in a wire rule, right, on quality. Um, and I think a system like this that's focused on that decision standard and focused on evidence and focused on quantification, see, that shifts the current incentive, which is don't resolve uncertainty. Agencies love it because when there's lots of uncertainty, they get deference from the courts. Let's create the incentive to resolve uncertainties. And again, rather than wasting the enormous amount of time and resources uh, and lost opportunity, which is enormous from the way the current system works, why don't we focus much more the energy on the production of evidence? So Stu has these, this sort of the four boxes of, you know, President O'Wire agree, President O'Wire disagree. Okay, that's uh, 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 two boxes, but then you got these other boxes where they're at odds, right? I think what this system would do is shrink those two boxes, and that's what that that's very beneficial, I think, for our regulatory system in our country if that happens over time. But you have to have the right incentives to do it. The status quo, Richard, I think is utterly inadequate on this score. I think it rewards uncertainty. It rewards gaming. Uh, and you got to incentivize the production of evidence. Well, with apologies, we're out of time. So in the interest of going to lunch, uh, let's please join me in thanking our speakers. You've been listening to a recent discussion of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. I'm the Gray Center's director, Adam White. For more episodes of this podcast, Arbitrary and Capricious, please visit the Gray Center's website or look for us wherever you get your podcasts.